Heather Clark is a professor at the University of Huddersfield and the author of Red Comet, The Short Life and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath. This is Heather Clark. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. I'm here with uh, Heather Clark. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so you wrote this book, Red Comet, The Short Life and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath. Um, she is this like legendary, uh, almost untouchable mythological figure in the <laughs> literary canon at this point. Uh, how were you first introduced to her? You know, I don't remember <laughs> no reading way. her in college. I was going to say, I don't remember reading her in college uh, or high school, actually. And yeah. I, which is surprising because most people encounter Sylvia Plath, I think in high school um, with the bell jar because the bell jar is such a widely read and, and taught novel. But I think um, my first real experience um, reading Sylvia Plath happened um, when I was teaching her poems in graduate school. So, I mean, I had, I had read her here and there, but right. I was uh, asked to teach a tutorial on her when I was doing a PhD in English over at Oxford. And this made me really nervous because I didn't feel like an expert on Sylvia Plath by any means. And I was writing a PhD on Northern Irish poets <laughs> in, and uh, their relationship with the politics and the troubles in Northern Ireland in the 1970s. So I was really surprised by this request to, to teach Sylvia Plath. It just seemed like out of left field to me. But as I started preparing uh, to teach her and reading her in, in more depth and considering her work in a deeper way than I ever had, I just, I started to realize I'd been missing something. And that, mm -hmm. that I think I had kind of fallen prey to this myth of her as this doomed hysteric, um, you know, this, this, she'd been sort of shortchanged in the popular imagination. And all of a sudden I'm reading her and I'm thinking to myself, this is one of the most sophisticated poets I've ever read. And uh, why, <laughs> why, have I not, why have I not been you know, um, told this before in a sense? So that, that just got me thinking about her, um, as I say, in a more profound way. And um, so you know, I taught my class and I had uh, been researching my PhD at Emory University, which has one of the best modern poetry archives in the world. And while I was there researching these Irish poets, uh, Ted Hughes's papers started coming in. Hmm. I mean, and when I say coming in, I mean literally on carts, in boxes, <laughs> coming in while I was sitting in the reading room. Uh, he, after he died, um, he well, actually before he died, he sold his papers to Emory. Uh, so this was really thrilling for me to see and I just sort of started to wonder what's in those boxes. And uh, so everything, there, everything sort of merged together. I was teaching the, the, the class on Plath. I, was, I knew all of this new Ted Hughes material was about to be processed and open to the public. And I was really interested in literary history and, and this concept of literary influence. And I sort of decided um, kind of midway through my PhD that I was gonna write my next book on Plath and Hughes and their their literary relationship and their creative marriage. And so um, that's what I did. <laughs> a 
Okay. Yeah. And, <laughs> that's and, kind of a long answer to No, uh, no, that's, that's perfect. And it is a bit unfair because I, I don't remember where I, Sylvia Plath, uh, where I first heard of her either. I, I think, you know, somehow these names just become imprinted in our, in our brains. But in, in other words, so I guess what I was trying to ask is you, you did originally, you were introduced to her by way of, uh, in part, at least the myth of her. Is, is yeah. that correct? Like, you, yeah. And yeah, I, I think so. And, um, you and, know, like, like everybody else, really. And I think yeah. uh, maybe that has to do with being an American <laughs> and thinking of the bell jar as her major work. Um, right. And because I, I think, you know, when I went to England, she was on the curriculum at Oxford. Her poetry was part of the sort of set English curriculum at the time. Now we're talking late 90s, uh, early 2000s at Oxford. So, you know, every, every uh, Oxford undergraduate had to read her and engage with her. And I don't remember having really even the option to take many classes about Plath or even women poets in general um, as an undergraduate in America. So I, I think it, you know, this may have to do with a British American split. I'm not sure. Hmm. Um, I just felt like she was taken more seriously as a poet in England. That's weird. I wonder why that is. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, maybe it's her, her association with Hughes, who right. was poet laureate, and maybe she's seen more as as a poet in, in sort of the light of of his accomplishments as well. I'm I'm just not sure, but um, I don't know. I just it, and it's not something I can you know scientifically prove. It's just right. this sense I have that that she was kind of taken more seriously as a poet over there. And, and there's something uh, when you talk about uh, your fascination with literary biography and, and this this concept of literary influence um, and, and being taken seriously, not just as this sort of uh, mythological figure, but as a poet, um, there, there's some, I forget who says it, but there's a quote from somebody in your book that's like, if you want to understand her poetry, you'd be better off reading her college thesis than examining <laughs> her relationship to her dead father. Uh, after yeah, one of her friends that, from Cambridge said that, yeah. Do you think that's true? You know, I think, I think it's a sort of a combination of so many different factors, but I felt like a lot of the previous biographies had been just so deeply invested in this psychoanalytic um, way of, of interrogating her life and her work. And I did feel like it, it, it shortchanged her in a sense, and that this kind of attention to, I guess you would say the pathology, right? The, um, her mental illness and her suicide, I felt like that had been sensationalized in previous biographies. And for me, the story that I wanted to tell was her attempt to fulfill her vocation, which was to become a great writer. Because mm. that was the story that I thought she told so clearly and forcefully about herself, you know, in her letters and her in her diary, the struggle to become a great writer. And yes, depression got in the way of that. And obviously ended her life ultimately. But um, I just felt like that story had been getting lost in some of the more sensationalistic aspects uh, of her life. And so going back to the quote you just mentioned by her friend, uh, that it's, it struck me because, you know, 
she was so influenced uh, by what she read and, and in a way, I think lived her life to kind of mimic some of her literary heroes. Um, for example, you know, she, she wanted to go off and, and live in Europe and write like D.H. Lawrence and Frida and, and that sort of thing. And so these, the, the way that she read uh, these works, I think really affected the way that she lived. And, and again, I felt like that hadn't really been dealt with in previous biographies. You mentioned her ambition. I mean, she she was when she went to Smith College, she was like an academic superstar. I mean, she was yeah. overachiever, you know, yes. Celsius. Like, oh, yeah. <clears throat> but during this time, she's still suffering from really serious depression. Like, yeah, she stays at McLean Hospital for six months. She tries to kill herself. She gets yeah. electroshock therapy. Like, yeah. how, how does how were you able in the writing of this book able to get a sense of like how she was able to like when people met her they thought that she was like very put together and on the outside very you know successful and ambitious and she was but how do you like how the hell do you keep it together and write great stuff while you're going through that yeah i mean her friends were so shocked when they heard the news in that summer of 1953, uh, after her first suicide attempt, uh, friends that I talked to, so they, they just couldn't believe it because she was the proverbial golden girl, right? She was, she was somebody who seemed to um, you know, just be high on living and who was always laughing and and was this stellar student and just, yeah, it seemed to have it all together, right? And, you know, I guess this is a good example of <laughs> not making assumptions about people's interior lives um, just based on, on the surface because she, yeah, I mean, she did struggle with anxiety uh, surrounding you know, her grades at Smith, um, she, you know, she always, she felt like if she, if she wasn't publishing regularly, um, something was wrong. I mean, she was really hard on herself. And so that was, that was sort of one of the things where I wanted to shake her sometimes and, and say like, you're doing, you know, <laughs> you're doing just fine. Um, she had such high uh, aspirations for herself. And I think, you know, she came from this Germanic immigrant family. And I think she had this immigrant um, desire to succeed and this, this Germanic immigrant work ethic and it just propelled her. But she suffered obviously from what I think is biochemical depression and that, you know, it did, and it did slow her down um, and it did almost take her life in 1953 and, and it took her life in 1963. So she always struggled um, she knew against that, and she knew that depression was was the thing that that was her greatest adversary. She knew that, um, but she also had a very kind of, I think, sadly moralistic um, relationship with her depression. Like she was upset that she couldn't talk herself out of it, right? And um, she couldn't, you know, she sort of felt like, what's wrong with me? I'm, I'm such a great student. I'm, I'm getting, you know, straight A's. I'm getting these fellowships and prizes and I'm being published in Harper's and the Atlantic. And yet 
I am still sick and sad. What is wrong with me? So a lot of that, she turned it inwards and there was a lot of self-blame. Um, so it, it did it did turn into kind of a, a spiraling vortex that, you know, it took her down in, in 1953. When you, you said earlier how, you know, she would do things like uh, the influence of writers on the way she lived her life, like going to mm -hmm. Europe, in after D.H. Lawrence, mm -hmm. um, do you think like, there, there's some um, um, line in her journal that uh, that you mentioned in the book, something like uh, like there's an increasing market for mental hospital <laughs> stuff. Like I'm a yeah. fool if I don't recreate it. Like, oh, yeah. Do you, like, do you see what I'm asking? Like, do you think that oh, she yeah. thought that this was going to be like, oh, OK, this is part of the the come up? Yes. I mean, I think she, everything was grist for her mill and she, you know, I, obviously I don't think she, she got sick and, and attempted suicide so that she could write about it later, but, but it happened. And she was reading other stories and novels about similar subjects. And she was very canny, you know, she was, she knew how to she knew how to play the literary game. She was very good at literary politics. Uh, she was sort of this master networker in that sense. So uh, yeah, she was savvy about what would sell. And so it is kind of amazing to see her reflecting on that, you know, the marketability of her, her story of breakdown and suicide. Um, yeah, there's sort of a disconnect there, but she was well enough by that point to understand that, that there was a potential there for a dramatic story of rebirth. And I think it, she thought maybe it would help her too to kind of revisit it and come to terms with it in, in that sense. So um, yeah, but, but no, she was, she was a very uh, savvy literary networker in that sense. And, and was that just something that was innate in her or, or where do you think that came from? Yeah, I sort of think it was. Um, I think, well, she was just such a hard worker and she she figured out how to play the game so early on. I mean, she she was sending poems to newspapers when she was eight and nine years old. Um, <laughs> and, and so she took on the habits of a professional writer when when she was in elementary school practically so so she had already had a lot of experience you know convincing editors to accept her poems and by the way her first poem was published when she was eight so um so she yeah so she'd had a lot of experience by the time she got to college and she kept these meticulous submission lists she she dated every story that she sent out to which magazine when it came back if it was rejected you know she just sent it out to the next place um, really meticulous, really efficient, and a really productive writer. Uh, she, I, I think it was innate, uh, but, but again, it was part of the drive, the, the drive to just, you know, to fulfill this vocation she, she wanted to write. Um, and in the book, I sort of say that that, that drive, that ambition, that sort of un, unvarnished ambition, uh, we're not used to seeing that in women so much in women writers. And I, and I sort of felt like there was a double standard, you know, when we, when we talk about male writers ambition, we don't, we don't necessarily fault them for it, but you know, in, in quite a few previous Plath biographies, her ambition is, 
is sort of cast in this light of neurotic perfectionism. And, and to me, that just seemed a bit unfair and a bit of a, of a double standard. Yeah, and and it can also be both for both men yeah, and women. You know, exactly. There is like a neurotic side to a lot of really ambitious people, but that yep. doesn't. It's not the only side. Yep, that's right. Yeah, and and uh, you know, I can see that it could, at a certain point, be you know, become a bit destructive if you're used to getting your stories accepted all the time and you're used to winning all the awards. And, and this is what happened really in the summer of 1953. She got rejected from Frank O'Connor's uh, creative writing class at Harvard. And that rejection, mind you, she was not used to getting rejected for anything. That rejection kind of triggered this depression that almost took her life. So, so yeah, I mean, there's a danger to that, right? It's a fine, it's a fine line. And when you mentioned the ambition in the context of, you know, 50s and 60s America being a woman, she, she at one point, she said something like she wants to be a, like a, a triple threat woman, like a professional, a wife <laughs> and a mother, which was, I, yeah. I imagine, like uncommon for that era. Why was that so important to her? Yeah, she... She wanted to have it all before having it all became a feminist catchphrase. And <clears throat> actually, I, Triple Threat Woman was one of the ideas for a title um, of the book. My editor quickly shot that down. She said, oh, that doesn't work. But, um, but, <laughs> but I, it does sort of speak to, to her ambition, to her drive. Yeah, she didn't, she didn't like the fact that in 1950s America, if you were a woman, you, you sort of had to choose between a family or a career. You, you couldn't really do both. And a lot of her poetic role models had kind of towed that line. You know, you think about Marion Moore or Elizabeth Bishop. Now, the, the world didn't know that Elizabeth Bishop was, was lesbian and that sort of thing. But I mean, these other famous women poets seem to just sort of focus on their career. Um, they weren't married, they didn't have children. And so Platt didn't, didn't want to follow in their footsteps. And she could actually be very cruel about women who, who decided not to have children or who couldn't have children. Um, she could be quite nasty about them sometimes, but she wanted all, she wanted the family, she wanted the literary success, she wanted to be a wife and a mother. Um, so yeah, and she just, she felt like, I shouldn't have to choose between these things. And for me, that's plus feminism. Just this, this sense of injustice that, um, that she, would, she, she couldn't have both, right? Mm. And, and that's part of, I think, what made her kind of a trailblazer. It was just, she just plowed right through that stereotype. And for a time, she did have it all. Of course, it all came crashing down. <laughs> um, but for a time, she managed and it was, it was sort of an incredible, she called it Eden, right? She had found her Eden. She had her children and her husband and her writing and, um, you know, before it all went to hell. Well, that, and that's the thing is, um, I, I guess we, we can use that to sort of get into the subject of, of Ted Hughes, perhaps. Like, you mentioned, like, the all the papers that 
his papers that came out. Um, well, I, I guess let's put this in a context. So she meets Ted Hughes in, in England, right? Yes. Okay. And yes. they're, uh, they wind up going to the United States together. Um, yep. And uh, I, w- we should talk about that period of her life as well. But th- this guy, Ted Hughes, I just have to say, like, I we'll get into it, but this guy seems like a real asshole. <laughs> like this, guy, <laughs> this guy seems like a really unpleasant person. And for someone who's as like smart and savvy as, as Sylvia Plath and like determined, it seems rather unfortunate that the guy that she decided to make like one third of her triple threat mm-hmm. like, it w- was not a really great guy. Well, you know, the thing, the thing is she wanted to marry someone who would take her seriously as an artist. And that, you know, she had a lot of boyfriends as you probably you know, re- read about in uh, the first half of the book. Um, that's actually the part of the book where we cut the most because I mean, she just led this almost picaresque and romantic life, you know, just dating uh, so many different men. And, but part of that was because she, she just felt like none of these guys that she was dating in America were taking her talent and her vocation seriously. Um, Or if they seemed to, then they would sort of pull back and, uh, she, so she, she saw all of, her, all of her friends getting married and starting to have children and which is crazy. Cause they were only, you know, in their early twenties, but yeah, again, it's, it's the fifties. Yeah. Um, and so she just decided that she, she had to hold out for someone who would share her life's ambition to become a great writer. And she wanted to marry a fellow artist. So you know, fast forward, we get to Cambridge University in 1956, and she meets Ted Hughes, who um, she very presciently realizes is on the cusp of greatness. Um, You know, just from reading a few poems in a literary magazine, she sort of susses out the fact that he, uh, he's on his way, and, and she falls in love with him. And that, you know, I go into this a bit in the book. I think that they were they were both sort of searching for a new a new language. They were searching for this new aesthetic to kind of shock British poetry out of submission. And and, and I've likened them not in in any published piece I've ever written, but I almost think of them as like punk rockers of the time, <laughs> like just um, just trying to shake things up and sick of sick of the poetry that's being written at, at the time, poetry by the movement. And, and they kind of see themselves as like these young Turks who are gonna change British poetry. And they, they're, they're, so there's a lot of drama involved in that. And they, they almost think of themselves as a team for the first few years of, of the marriage. And you know, I consider myself a Hughes scholar as well as a Plath scholar. So you know, what fascinated me about the marriage and I know that the marriage ended tragically and you know it's sort of heartbreaking to read her letters about the end of the marriage but what what did what really fascinated me was the the creative partnership and just the fact that 
these two, two of the greatest poets of the post-war years were, were married for six years. And like, how did that affect their poetry? How did they influence each other? How did their, their marriage influence the course of Anglo-American post-war poetry? So I was sort of those bigger questions were, were floating around in my head, um, you know, when I wrote my second book. But, but yeah, to answer your question, I just think she saw in Hughes, at least in the early years, someone who would take her seriously as a poet. And, and I think he did. Uh, I think he really did. And again, the end of the marriage was, was destructive and terrible. And, and we all know about that. But the first few years, I think, were actually quite productive. And, you know, she helped him so much. She was his agent. She was his secretary. She did, she did everything for him. I mean, she, <laughs> she yeah. sent his work out. She kept track of his finances. You know, she organized his readings. She read his mail, answered his mail for him. I mean, she did everything. And he, he acknowledged that at one point, you know, that, that he, I think there, he says like, I'd be fishing off a rock in Western Australia, if not <laughs> for her ambition for me. So I think it's a real question. Would he have become Ted Hughes, you know, poet laureate, if Plath hadn't helped him along? I, I don't know. I mean, he was sort of a minor poet before she came along, just publishing in, in college magazines, where she, she was well on her way, right? She had been published in um, you know, Harper's and The Atlantic, and she was in Mademoiselle. And so, yeah, in a way, she kind of discovered him. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Which is a strange, like, it, I talked to um, a Jackson Pollock biographer at, mm -hmm. at one point earlier on, and uh, very similar sort of dynamic with, with Lee Krasner, who mm, yeah. discovered, saw Jackson Pollock and said, this, this guy is going to be really big at some point, and did everything for him. And she was an artist in her own right. Um, oh. But it's, was there like sort of a, a weird competitive undertone there? Do you think at all? Like, did, do you think she ever resented him for the success that she kind of brought him? Yeah, it, it's such a good question. And I, I tried to kind of figure this out in my, my second book, which is just a short, it's not a short, it's, <laughs> it's just an, it's short compared to Red Comet, but it's an academic book, right? About their, their creative uh, partnership. And I, I think that, you know, she says things like, oh, I'm so glad he's first. When, when the Hawk and the Rain wins this big literary prize, um, that she, she sent his manuscript into this, this prize. She didn't send her own, she chose to send his. Now her manuscript was sort of ready to go, but she, she felt like his had a better chance of winning. And she was probably right. Um, for a number of different reasons. But anyway, when she, when she got that news, she, uh, she said, I'm so glad he's first, but, but then she starts thinking, you know, she starts writing in her journal about how she wants to win a prize too. And, right. and when she wins a prize, they'll go out for this fancy dinner and they'll order escargot. And, you know, she sort of fantasizes about it a bit. So, yeah, I think there was, you know, a bit of rivalry undercurrent there. Um, and it kind of moved in, in different directions. Uh, I think maybe when they were living in Devon and Plath had uh, gotten a contract to publish The Bell Jar and she was winning 
fellowship money and getting her her poems published and and Hughes was kind of uh, I think at a in a staler period of his career he was going through a bit of a dry spell yeah I think there was some envy there um, you know when when one of when one person in a partnership uh, is going full steam and the other is going through a dry spell I think I think that does take a toll yeah for sure and. and- there were, I mean, other like active uh, poets who who had an influence on her work. Like when, when we're talking about the uh, period where uh, her and Hughes they they go to Boston. She's like teaching yes. at Smith for a while, and then they go to Boston, and she goes to these um, uh, like creative writing seminars given by Robert Lowell. And there's like Anne Sexton is there, and yeah, <laughs> I mean, crazy like. Talent. Imagine being a fly on the wall in that class. Right, yeah. Like, okay. What, what, um, what did those seminars mean for her? Like, what, what did those other poets, uh, like, what influence did did those two in particular have on her work? Um, could you talk about like yeah. that experience a little bit? Yeah. Well, funny you ask because I'm my new book is sort of about just that. I'm writing. Uh, a new book about the Boston years of Plath, Sexton, Adrian Rich, and Maxine Kuhlman. Um, and I'm kind of looking at the collision of second wave feminism and confessionalism. <laughs> and uh, so I, I've sort of just started this, but it's, I think that that seminar was so important for American poetry. Um, and I think, I think I'm deciding now that it, was even more important than I thought it was a year ago. Um, Robert Lowell uh, published Life Studies in the spring of 1959, which was which is considered sort of a watershed collection in American poetry, and it's it's often cited as the you know the first confessional volume. And Anne Sexton's To Bedlam and Partway Back was published in 1960. Sexton and Lowell both read or workshopped um, some of their poems in this class that Lowell taught at Boston University, of which Plath was part. So Plath was reading these poems by Sexton and Lowell that dealt with um, nervous breakdowns, uh, asylums, institutionalization, suicide attempts. I mean, all these really taboo subjects and experiences that that she had been through, <laughs> right? And but she had not she had not attempted to really write about these experiences in her poetry. She had in her fiction a bit, but not her poetry. And I feel like Lowell and Sexton kind of gave her permission to start to explore those experiences in her poetry. And Hughes had been encouraging this as well. You know, she Plas said in her journal, "I want to break out of my glass call." C-A-U-L, mm-hmm. and my, my Rococo crystal cage, she called it. She felt like her poetry was too kind of decorous and mannered and I guess well-behaved. And she was, you know, again, she wanted to break out of that. And Lowell and Sexton, I think, really helped that along because, I mean, if you read some of Sexton's poems, um, it, it almost looks like Sexton is writing a Plath poem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in All My Pretty Ones, which of course she's not. Plath is actually influenced by Sexton and Ariel. And um, if you read Sexton's poem, My Friend, My Friend, which is about um, her friendship with Maxine Kuhlman, uh, you can see exactly what Plath borrowed 
to, to write daddy. I mean, she almost like plagiarizes parts of Sexton's poem when she writes daddy. So I think that, yeah, I think Lowell and Sexton had a huge influence on Plath. And I'm really excited to, to kind of dig deeper into that in this new book and explore it in, in even more detail than I, I was able to recently in Red Comet. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's like one of those weird sort of occurrences in history where a bunch of like talented people get in one spot. I, I have no idea yeah. how that happens, but it seems to happen <laughs> a good amount of time. But um, so speaking of confessional poetry, why was confessional poetry so like so much different than what had come before why why is it important like like mm. why did it come about at that time i like maybe these are too many questions at once but yeah well no these are these are all questions that i'm i'm kind of trying to answer right now and i don't i don't have really good answers for them yet but my sense is that Robert Lowell went for a poetry reading on the West Coast um, in, you know, in the in the 50s, I think maybe after he wrote Lord Weary's Castle. And he, uh, when he was out there, he heard some of the beat poets read. And that apparently, you know, was kind of a <laughs> influential experience for him, you know, hearing these populist performances. And, and he said, after he, he heard some of these beat poets read his own poetry, felt um, you know, bogged down with imagery and just kind of stale and lifeless. So uh, I think there's a lot more to be done connecting kind of the beats to confessionalism, which in a way it's, it's hiding in plain sight, right? I mean, you think about Allen Ginsberg's Howl which I think was, you know, 1956. And just a few years later, Robert Lowell comes along with Life Studies. Um, and I, I think what was different about the Lowell's type of confessionalism, quote unquote confessionalism, uh, was that it, it was, you know, it, it wasn't just the kind of let it all hang out style of beat poetry and apologies to anyone who's offended by that but that's sort of how Plath and Hughes thought of the beat poets not yeah. necessarily how I think of them but they were sort of contemptuous of them you know this let it all hang out style this sort of um, amateurish almost unearned style that that was not disciplined in its use of form and rhyme and imagery you know it was like it was too influenced by Walt Whitman just see these sort of long lines these outpourings of emotions and uh and, and ironically, Plath really didn't approve of, of using these kind of, some of these personal experiences uh, for, for drama. So um, I think, but Lowell was someone who made it okay. <laughs> and he's from one of the most uh, prominent Boston families, right? And all of a sudden he's airing all of this dirty laundry <laughs> in his poems. And I think this was kind of the crossing of the Rubicon when someone like Robert Lowell um, kind of makes the decision to go in this direction, in a way, following Allen Ginsberg, um, he legitimates it somehow, mm. partly because he's the most famous poet in America at that point, or at least one of the most famous. And also, you know, he's a lull, right? Um, he's, again, one of the, from one of the most important New England lineages. 
So uh, he, he legitimates it. And I think he gave permission to the women, you know, he gave permission to Sexton and Plath to, to follow that route as well. And, um, and I think, I think it was harder for them uh, to kind of air those personal stories. Um, I think it was a bit easier for Lowell, but the term confessionalism actually was coined by a critic named M.L. Rosenthal, who, was, who reviewed Lowell's life studies in uh, 1959 in The Nation. So that whole term, that actual term, confessional poetry, comes from a review of Lowell's life studies. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, in that sense, Lowell did inaugurate the, the so-called school. Well, but, you know, I take your point. It's like, well, poets have been writing about themselves forever and right. <laughs> dramatic monologues, like what? <laughs> why, why do you think that it was easier for, yeah. for him to um, be doing this sort of confessional stuff than it was for uh, Sexton and Plath? I think, well, just, I think because he was a man, he was a white man who came from an enormous privilege and that in itself was a shield. But although I, st- I still, I think it was very brave of him to do what he did, not trying to kind of diminish um, that aesthetic turn that he took. Cause I think it did require a lot of courage. He, he, you know, in his, um, one of his speeches or I think he was accepting a major prize for uh, for life studies might have been the National Book Award. He said he said you know we needed a breakthrough back into life that you know that poems had become so mannered and kind of doing all of these new critical tricks right and they'd almost almost become these metaphysical artifacts. He said we needed a breakthrough back into life and there were, there needed to be a rawness he sort of re tried to reintroduce this rawness back into American poetry. He talked about the difference between the raw and the cooked Mm -hmm. and, you know, we'd had enough of the cooked, we needed the raw again. Um, So, you know, I think he, he, I think he was shielded because of his gender, because of his class. Um, Elizabeth Bishop wrote to him at one point and said, you know, when you, when you write in this confessional style, it's so interesting because all of your relatives are so famous. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm paraphrasing her here. Um, you know, you, you just, you, you talk about your uncle, this and your aunt, and it's like, you're, t- you're talking about American history, but when other people try to do it, it's not as interesting. So she, she sort of gets at that issue um, of, of the lineage. And I think for, it's just always going to be harder, I think, for a woman, especially in the late 50s to um, to talk about these really taboo subjects like suicide attempts and um, and breakdowns and being institutionalized um, you know at that time when you couldn't even say pregnant on network television right <laughs> it was it was just such a conservative time we're in the middle of the cold war there's this ethos of containment and the nuclear family and the suburbs with the nice green lawns where nothing bad ever happened. And, um, and, but underneath this placid surface, women are seething. And Betty Friedan, that's what she's, she's getting at in the feminine mystique, the problem that has no name. And I think Plath and Sexton kind of got there first before Betty Friedan in in their poetry. Um, But 
you know, this, this idea that confessional poets are navel gazers and are narcissistic. I think the women suffered from that a lot more than the men. Um, and again, that's something that I'm, I'm going to write about now. I'm more interested in that. So I, I don't, I haven't quite worked it all out, but um, yeah, no, but yeah, the, the charges of narcissism. Yeah. Right. I, I just think Lowell didn't, didn't suffer from those charges of narcissism and sort of vanity in the same way that um, Plath and Sexton did. Sexton, I mean, James Dickey, he wrote a scathing review uh, and, and she actually had it in her, I think she had it in her purse when she died by suicide like she kept that review on her oh. you know it was just the you i think as a woman at in 1959 1960 61 62 you're just you're really you're really putting yourself out there when you're writing about these taboo subjects and you don't necessarily have the protection of um gender and and class that that lowell had Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the 50s for a, a woman to be writing about being institutionalized must have been just like, yeah. I, I, I can't even, you know, even now, there's definitely still a, a stigma to it. Um, or yeah. or for, for anyone to write about, you know, like mental health problems, but especially then when it really was not as well understood, like, exactly. God, it must have just been really rough <laughs> like yeah i think i think they were all very courageous to put this stuff out there and i, I think i say in my introduction that class poem lady lazarus almost predicts reality television <laughs> because yeah. now we live in this confessional world that <laughs> everyone's confessing everything all the time so it's it's hard for us to put ourselves back into you know lowell's classroom in boston university in 1959 when this was all new right and this was a society, a very buttoned up society that did not indulge in, uh, in these, in talking about these topics. So it's, I, I think it's hard for us to, to kind of put ourselves back in, in that position <laughs> before, yeah, everything was confessing. Everyone was confessing everything all the time. Well, yeah. I mean, that's true of a lot of art, like the, the yeah. Rite of Spring or I forget whatever that Stravinsky play is called. Or, uh, yes. Yeah. Rites of Spring. Yeah. 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 Where people threw their chairs at the orchestra when it was premiered. And now you listen to it. It's like, ah, oh, it sounds like classical <laughs> music. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so what what about with uh, with Plath? Was she was she subjected to those same kind of criticisms? She kind of touches on it in in Lady Lazarus, as you as you mentioned. Um, but did that did that sting her at all? Yeah, you know, she didn't live long enough to suffer the consequences um, of writing about these very taboo things in the way that Anne Sexton did. Um, because Plath died in 1963. And um, I think, you know, after she, she suffered posthumously, certainly. Uh, poems like Daddy and Lady Lazarus were heavily criticized for their appropriation of Holocaust imagery, especially by critics like Harold Bloom, Irving Howe, um, even George Steiner, Seamus Heaney, Helen Vendler. I mean, there was a point in the 80s where it was just, you know, <laughs> essay after essay. Um, and, 
And yeah, I mean, it's still, I think to this day, it's, she's, she's still controversial for that reason. I, I had someone ask me recently, like I say that I, she, Plass poetry should be banned in Germany because she, she makes, he, you know, this person thought she made light of the Holocaust uh, too much. So it's, this is still something that comes up. Um, the, one of the interesting things I found in my research is that uh, Plath, Plath apparently had Jewish blood um, in, in this new collection of papers at Emory University. Uh, there's an interview with Plath's mother, with, with a Plath biographer who never actually finished her book, but all of her papers are now at Emory. And Plath's mother talks about how her maternal um, Viennese grandmother was either uh, Jewish or part Jewish. And then in Plath had told other friends over the years that, that she had Jewish blood and she sort of romanticized it. But you know, when she says in Daddy, I think I may well be a Jew, um, you know, that was a line that she was really criticized for, you know, for taking on this, this identity of a Jew and a Holocaust victim. Uh, but, but actually, I mean, she might be speaking literally in that right. line. Um, now that we know a bit more about, you know, that I think she did, I think that there was this uh, clash. She did know that she had some Jewish blood and, um, I think that was tough for her given that she had, you know, part of her lineage was German. Uh, so anyway, all I'm saying is that it's complicated. Um, yes, her poems are, are still quite controversial in many ways. Um, I think Lady Lazarus though, I think that she, you know, there, it's, it's the spectacle of a woman falling apart in that poem. And she talks about the big striptease and all of these people have paid money in the poem to come watch her attempt another suicide. And I think Plath is really turning the mirror back on us and kind of exposing us, the audience, that these voyeurs that, that want to come see the, the, the train wreck and the freak show. So I think she's doing something really ironic in Lady Lazarus, which is you know, supposedly this quote unquote confessional poem. And that's something that I try to argue in the book that, that she's not necessarily the straightforward confessional poet. She's always doing things with irony. She's always one step ahead in that way, kind of playing with the idea of biographical truth, playing with the idea of confession. It's, it's th that Emily Dickinson, tell the truth, but tell it slant kind of thing. Right. So I think it really trivializes her artistry to just see her as someone who is only writing from, from her autobiography without kind of using other elements like myth and surrealism. And you know, she's very in influenced by surrealist art, for example. So she's, she's just pulling from lots of different strands, right? Not just her own life. And, um, you do mention you mentioned earlier about like the the Eden that that she had found um, mm. at one point in her relationship with Ted Hughes, and after this this period in Boston, um, mm -hmm. she does uh, eventually go back um, to England, and it seems like it's sort of like the beginning of, of the end almost like at least for their relationship and for her life and she dies so young I mean yeah. it's like um did was that ever a feeling that you had that like wow I wonder what her poetry would have been like had she lived longer oh yeah I mean 
all the time. I try not to think about it. Um, all the what ifs. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but she gave us so much in such a short time. She's like John Keats, right? And you, you just wish, yeah, you wish that she had been able to enjoy a long life and you know live to see her own children grow up and uh, and and of course to write more. Uh, yeah, I think she had other novels in her. She was you know, she was writing a novel uh, when she died that is that has disappeared you know she apparently was half finished but i think she yeah i think she would have continued and i do wonder given the example of adrian rich i wonder if she would have gone in the same direction that adrian rich went in because rich was somebody who also got married early you know who was another academic superstar she was just wowed all of her professors at Radcliffe. She had been just like Plath, you know, writing poetry since she was six years old. <laughs> um, she was just a prodigy. And, and she married very early uh, after graduation and became this uh, 1950s housewife, raising three children, putting her husband's work first. And, and you you look back and you can't believe this is Adrian Rich <laughs> yeah. uh, writing in her journal about how women should be subordinate to men. I mean, it's just, it's so, it's so um, astonishing to read. And then of course she kind of has this awakening and she says, I've been sleepwalking. And, and then you know, she, she has a second, she has a rebirth as a feminist and queer activist and, and all of this. So her life changes. And, and she becomes uh, very political. So I don't know if Plath would have gone down that road, but it's just something that I wonder about. Um, maybe not because Plath could be sort of nasty about what she, her version of what a feminist was. You know, she, she didn't like this idea of career women. Um, she felt like her, like our female professors, you know, she would make fun of them. And, so that, so I don't know if she would have, she would have gone down that road. All I'm saying is that I just wish she had lived to see the, the, the fruits of second wave feminism. You know, the, the Feminine Mystique was published in England, I think a week after her death. So yeah, I, I'm always curious about you know, if she had lived to see the changes brought on by, by second wave feminism would that have changed her? And I, I don't know. And, and like on that same note, I mean, she she wrote like I, I I don't know how many. I think it was like well over twenty, and maybe like most of the poems in Ariel, like in, in the sort of like last creative burst of her life. Mm -hmm. um, can can you help uh, us understand how and when I say us I don't mean that in the royal we I mean me and people listening um but <laughs> can, can can you help us understand um how someone can be like that creative which I assume uh it's hard to do that in like a really depressed state and then very shortly afterwards um commit suicide I mean uh, how, mm. how does were you able to get a sense of how that worked psychologically? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a there was a manic element to her illness, to her depression. 
and uh, and she was very well aware of it. She actually diagnosed herself um, as kind of a manic depressive. She doesn't, I don't think she uses that term in her journal, but she does say things like, I am suffering from depression. And, you know, one, one week I'm up high and then I'm down. I mean, it's, it's sort of like classic manic, uh, manic depression. And I, I think after the marriage dissolved, she was trying to rebuild her life and she was very excited uh, about a newly independent life in London. And, and so I think there were these tides that were carrying her. And there was, I mean, even though her marriage had broken down, um, there was a, an exuberance there, I think, because she writes to some of her friends, even though she's heartbroken, but she says things like, I don't ever want to be anyone's wife again. You know, I want to be free. I'm free now. And so I think she does see the opportunity. Um, but she also, I think, also understands the stigma of being an unmarried, sorry, a divorced woman in uh, the early 60s, a single mother, you know, and she cares about these things. So there are these two kind of currents existing side by side, I think, in that fall of 1962. And, uh, and so I think she, the, the sort of high <laughs> carries her through uh, December, she moves to London and she had been hopeful about a romance with Alvarez and that didn't work out. Uh, and she kind of realized that that wasn't going to work out around Christmas time. And around the same time, she got the news that the American, her American publishers were not interested in publishing the bell jar. Mm. So these were two rejections um, during the winter, which was always a hard time for her. And she really cared about American publication. She cared about it, I think, more than British publication. She wanted to write a bestseller that would fund her new independent lifestyle. She didn't want to depend on Hughes for money. You know, she wanted um, to, yeah, to support herself as a writer. And when she got that news that the bell jar had been rejected by uh, Knopf and Harper and Rowe, and she was devastated. And so that I think, and you know, the romantic fallout that kind of sends her into a, a a downturn and of course we all know about you know, this was the worst winter in the century in England her she had no hot water no heat no electricity intermittently she was sick the kids were sick i mean it was just this perfect storm of right. bad circumstances and uh, and she was very lonely you know she didn't have a lot of friends there and she was you know she was just worried about uh, things and she she didn't have the time to write at the very end I think that as long as she could write, you know, she could kind of carry herself through, but her au pair, she fired her au pair, not too, too uh, long before her suicide. And I think just having that help, ha having no chance of, of any kind of help with the kids, that was like a, just another, another blow. Yeah. Um, so all of these things I think lined up and um, I mean, who knows in the end? And, and she was, I argue at the end of my book that 
uh, there were other factors at play. She was worried about being institutionalized right. in, in England. Her, psych her doctor was trying to get her a bed in a psychiatric hospital. And she knew that it was not going to be McLean this time. There was not going to be a limousine picking her up, <laughs> bringing her to one of the poshest, you know, mental hospitals in the country. Uh, this, this all really worried her. And in her last letter to her psychiatrist, Dr. Ruth Boisher, she talked about her fear of, and I quote, a mental hospital and lobotomies. So I, I do think we have to entertain the possibility that you know, this, this fear of losing her autonomy, being institutionalized, having electroshock therapy again, all of these really traumatic things that had happened to her in the past, she was facing the prospect of all of that happening to her again. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, so I think that was terrifying for her. And she was on a bunch of different drugs. <laughs> I mean, I get into it at the, at the, in the end of my book. I just think that there's, it's so complicated. I think there's so many different factors but ultimately who knows yeah and what about sort of like the influence of of ted hughes on all this because he had not one but two intimate partners commit suicide uh over the course of his life and i if that happened to me i would take a serious look in the mirror and given the fact that there were letters to her psychiatrist that suggests that uh he was physically abusive in, in yeah. their relationship yeah uh, like apparently he uh, beat her up and then two days later had a miscarriage um like what about that influence i mean does he there there are some people who say that uh he's you know he's the one who essentially might as well have killed her but in in like a reasonable term like did he have an influence uh, I mean, I, I would absolutely not say that yeah, um, because, yeah, I, I, I actually went into this book. Um, I wanted to see where the documentary evidence took me, but one of, one of the kind of ideological starting points that I, I had when I began was that I, I didn't think it would be, uh, I guess, ethical or, uh, it would be okay for me to blame her suicide on any one person because right. I just felt like, how can you, how can you do it? And it had been, been done already. I mean, her mother has been blamed. And of course, Ted Hughes has been blamed, um, very publicly blamed in poems and people chisel Hughes off the gravestone and all that. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, which, which is not to say that yeah, I mean, of course, he he behaved terribly at the end of the uh, the marriage, and and that was that obviously um, was not good for Plath, and probably, I mean, if they had continued <laughs> this happy marriage um, into the future, I mean, who knows? And to what extent did the did the the affairs and the end of the marriage contribute to her? depression, I mean, probably, but she had also tried to uh, kill herself in 1953. Right. Um, and so, and, and also Asia Wevel had, you know, numerous suicide attempts before she met Ted Hughes. Um, so I do think 
you know, it is a bit unfair to, to pin it all on him. Um, and I think it's unfair to pin it on her mother. And uh, now all of the, you know, there are so many different factors. And I just think at the end of the day, it's, it's hard to know for sure. But you know, would she have been better off if she had married one of the, the all-American boys that her mother wanted her to marry back in Wellesley? <laughs> I mean, if she had become a doctor's wife, right? And uh, would she still be with us today? Maybe. It's just really, these are just such tragic outcomes and tragic questions. Um, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, so we, we're closing in on, on an hour here, so I don't want to take up uh, too much more of your time. But it, it, if, like, let's say someone uh, listening to this goes out and, and reads your book, um, is there, like, sort of uh, an outstanding takeaway that you want them to to leave with? W was there like a a driving factor for why you run, wanted to to write this book and the, the impact you wanted it to have on uh, our understanding of Sylvia Plath? Yeah, I think I just want people to take her seriously. Um, not as a depressive, not as a suicide, not as these things, you know, these terms that come to mind immediately when you hear the name Sylvia Plath, um, all of the, the mental health issues seem to just take over the narrative. And, uh, and I think really overshadow what, uh, what she achieved. And I, I feel like despite the, the tragic end, she did achieve so much. Um, I do think that she changed the direction of modern poetry, that she, her verse was so influential and that you know, so many poets have been kind of chasing, <laughs> chasing the singularity of her voice ever since. I mean, you read a Sylvia Plath poem, you know it's a Sylvia Plath poem. Right. Um, and, and I think, in her in her short life, she did fulfill uh, her ambition um, to some extent. I don't think she realized how how famous she would become, but um, but yeah, just to take her seriously as one of the greatest poets of the 20th century, um, and you know, obviously, I, wa I wanted to honor her experience with mental illness, with depression. Uh, and, and all of that, I don't want to whitewash any of that because it was a huge part of her life. And, and you know, she succumbed to depression. Um, I was talking before about how I didn't want to pin, I didn't want to blame one person for her suicide because I, I truly believe that the villain in the story is depression. Um, depression took her life. And so, again, I don't want to whitewash that, but I just want to, um, I guess, reposition her as as a kind of triumphant poetic voice and someone whose example I think opened doors for scores of women poets who came after especially um and so yeah I did Maggie Nelson has this quote I quote her in the in the beginning of my book she says to be called the Sylvia Plath of anything is a bad thing yeah. 
And I guess I, I want to flip the script there. You know, I, I want it to be a good thing yeah. <laughs> to be compared to Sylvia Plath. Like, oh my God, you know, it's just the ambition, the wit, the determination, the, um, the talent, the just in the fight that she had. She, she achieved so much at such a sexist time in our country's history. Um, and she had to really kind of break down a lot of barriers to do so. And, and I admire her for that. And to me, she's a fighter. I mean, I know a lot of people would argue with that given the way her life ended, but I still see her as a fighter. I think that's a good note to end it on. Uh, Heather, thank you very much for your time. Uh, people can find your book where books are sold, Amazon, et cetera. Is the, do you have a website that um, might, might- I do, yes. Um, well, actually the book is half price on Amazon right now. So, <laughs> cause it's expensive, it's $40. I'm all for supporting independent bookstores, but I also know that my book is expensive. So it's it's like $20 on Amazon right now. Nice. My website is uh, www.heatherclarkauthor.com. Sweet. All righty. Uh, Heather, thanks again for your time and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Heather Clark and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.